And in the end, there is no book, there is no way that you can learn to read the wind um, other than getting out there, making a wind decision, applying it to your sight, and firing that good shot. Hey there. Welcome to another episode of Everyday Marksman Radio. I'm your host, Matt Robertson, and this is the Everyday Marksman, the podcast where we talk about tactical skills for an adventurous life. On today's episode, I have an interview with not one, but two guests, a husband and wife duo who have a gamut of experience in the shooting sports, military, tactical, competition. They are all over the place. And man, was this one good. I don't want to give any spoilers away, but if you know how I think about mindset and how important the way you think about your performance is, then you know that I'm going to enjoy this one because that is what we're talking about. We are talking about the mental game and what it is you have to do for your mindset to make you grow as a shooter and get better so you can win that competition, win that gunfight if you find yourself in that situation, or just be better at life. Today's show notes can be found at everydaymarksman.co forward slash 12. That is the number 12. Once again, that's everydaymarksman.co forward slash 12. All right, I don't want to delay you anymore, so let's get to them over the phone. For today's episode, I have two fantastic guests who have very different backgrounds. One was a member of Canada's national shooting team and won medals in the Mexico World Cup, Commonwealth Games, Cuba World Cup, and later became the first woman to win the Ontario Lieutenant Governor's Medal for full bore shooting. By 2002, she became a top-ranked female competitor in F-class shooting, and in 2008 became a national sniper and precision rifle champion. She also volunteered as a director, manager, administrator, and consultant in the Canadian Provincial and National Shooting Sports Organizations, and currently designs courses for competitive and professional marksmen. Our second guest served as a Canadian military officer with more than 25 years of experience, including a combat tour in Vietnam, peacekeeping and counter-sniper operations in Cyprus, and many large-scale military exercises throughout North America and Europe. He has taught marksmanship courses to the Canadian Forces Infantry School and to many police services throughout Canada. He is an internationally certified shooting coach and is a member of the Canadian Forces Sports Hall of Fame and the Dominion of Canada Rifle Association Sports Hall of Fame. Together, these two hold many provincial and national titles and records, winning international championships throughout the world in sniper marksmanship, service rifle, and three-gun competition. They are also the authors of The Secrets of Mental Marksmanship, how to Fire Perfect Shots. It is my pleasure to introduce Linda Miller and Keith Cunningham. So, hey guys, welcome to the show. Wow, that's a great introduction. <laughs> I feel honored to meet me. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, now I'm honored to meet you guys, so I'm, I'm really happy that you guys could uh, talk to me today. Well, it's our pleasure, and, and this is one topic that we've always, uh, as you can maybe tell, we've always uh, loved to talk about. Um, particularly uh, our experiences in it and where it's taken us. Okay, great. So, I mean, I, I want to start here with a quote that actually um, you, you guys sent me a copy of, of your book, The Secrets of Mental Marksmanship Ahead of Time. And you had a, a, a quote written in there that I thought is a really good place to start here, which is train the mind and the rest will follow. <laughs> and I hear the snickering on the phone on that one. So uh, let's go ahead and start there. Uh, you know, I have a little bit of background and I've read stuff in the past about, you know, uh, mental programming and, you know, winning mindset, but I, I kind of want to get a better sense from you guys who are the experts here. What is mental marksmanship? We have a definition. Mental marksmanship is the process of improving the probability that you'll have a consistent mental performance under stress and on demand. <laughs> so it's all the tools and techniques, training, and practice that you can do to make sure that your mind is in control. Once, um, once you've learned the technical skills 
of, uh, of firing a shot. Uh, you know, the, the position, the, the way to hold the rifle, the way to sight the rifle, the way to apply trigger pressure. Once you kind of learned all of that, um, then it becomes uh, 90% mental and, um, and might even be a bit conservative with, with 90%. Uh, it's the way you think, uh, the way you approach it uh, will make the difference uh, on the firing line. So do you usually see like a transition point where like where, where does someone learn enough of the technical skill where the mental becomes more important? Um, probably as soon as they know to, how to load and unload. Um, for example, we used to teach mental program as an advanced shooting skill. We now teach it from the very first series of dry fires we put our students through. And it's because the, if, the, if the mind isn't in control, we have a great deal of trouble making the body do what we want it to do. If you're thinking about, you know, where you're, where you're going to get dinner tonight or uh, how you're going to pay the, the huge bill you have from Milk and Marksmanship Complex or, <laughs> you know, any of those stray thoughts like, why are there ants in front of me? You know, if you're thinking those thoughts while you're, while you're trying to learn how to shoot well, you're not going to learn to shoot well. So we, we try to isolate um, the, the little bit of what you're thinking about just during the maybe five to ten seconds it gets to get your mind organized and get the shot fired. And that's where the mental program comes in. So, so let's, actually, let's go into that mental program. So what, what is that? The mental program is a series of conscious thoughts leading up to the subconscious firing of a perfect shot. So it's, a, it's just a little checklist of, of words that uh, gets the conscious mind uh, moving in the right direction. Um, the subconscious mind where our skills are kept moves in the direction that the conscious mind is picturing. So we need to make sure that we're picturing the right thought or, or creating the right conscious trigger uh, that causes the subconscious skills to come to the surface and be applied. I want to back up then because you mentioned a couple of things here that I think uh, we need a common definition to work from. So you mentioned that the, the mental, the mental program is a conscious thoughts that drive kind of the subconscious. So I know in the book, you talk about kind of three overlapping circles of the conscious, the subconscious, and then the self image. So what do these things look like? Like what, how do you explain that to a student? Um, but, well, the conscious mind is, is the one in charge of, of it's, it's the control freak. It wants to, to control everything, and it only relinquishes control to the subconscious mind somewhat reluctantly. But it's really good at checklists. It's really good at staying aware of what's going on around you. So it needs to um, do things like uh, run the mental program, and that keeps it kind of satisfied. So it, it relinquishes control to the subconscious and the subconscious, as Keith said, is where the skills are kept. That's who knows how to, how to put the sights on the target correctly and, and squeeze the trigger properly. So would you say like the conscious mind is more like when a beginner is first learning that technical skill you mentioned of how to load and unload and, and assume the position, like they're thinking a lot more about that? Yeah. If, if you related it to learning how to drive a car... Um, because there's so many skills that you have to do at the same time, you wouldn't take somebody out on a freeway and teach them how to drive a car. You'd put them in a parking lot or an empty lot someplace and you'd think, and you'd show them where the, where all the buttons are and, and how the clutch works and where the brake is and all that. And you'd have them do little stops and goes to, to, uh, to get onto that. And it wouldn't be until they've accomplished all those conscious uh, basic things that you would ever think about taking them out uh, on a roadway, and then and then you would progress that along as well. Um, so if you if you think of it as you're you're learning to make your first right turn, when you are learning to do this, you have to consciously think each thought. You have to say, okay, I need to make a right turn up here. Uh, what do I need to do? Oh, um, I need to have the signal light on. I need to get into the right lane. I need to check for traffic. I need to look in my mirrors. I need to start slowing down. I need to start turning a little bit, uh, a little more, too much. Okay, and you get around your corner. Well, now uh, you come to that same right turn, and the trigger that the conscious mind comes up with is, I need to make a right turn. And without thinking further on it, you turn the signal lights, you check your mirrors, you get into the right-hand lane, uh, you start to slow down and, and you make that turn absolutely perfectly each and every time. And of course, the difference is you learn to do that uh, very consciously at the start. 
and then you practiced it correctly a million times until now you can do it without thinking it or do it subconsciously. So where does the term like overthinking it come from? <laughs> that's, that's letting the conscious mind have far too much control. That, and it usually stems from, from insufficient practice. A lot of people uh, don't distinguish between training and practice. So training is where you first are told about a skill. You might first try it on, see how it fits your own body and, and mindset. And practice is where once you've discovered something that, that appears to be working, you, you do it over and over again. And without that repetition, you got nothing. Sorry, I'm furiously writing notes down. I think that was a really good uh, you know, distinction between the difference between training and practice, I think, is something that a lot of people conflate, right? Uh, I'll admit, even I, I, I'm kind of fuzzy, fuzzy on that difference a little bit. Well, we once saw um, a video. People frequently send us videos of uh, shootouts uh, and, and want our comments on them. And we once saw this one where a police officer uh, was in the middle of a shootout and uh, he had to do an emergency mag change. Um, and he, he fumbled that mag change incredibly badly. He just, it was just the worst looking mag change. He, he changed hands with the pistol several times and reached into different pockets looking for his emergency mag and just did it all wrong. And you can see that, that although this guy was, was trained, he would have had to have been trained in order to pass his qualifications, but he clearly wasn't practiced. One of my favorite analogies, because I do play the piano, is that um, if all you did was go once a week to your piano teacher and didn't do any practice in between lessons, you really wouldn't progress. In fact, you would retrogress. So there's the, the piano teacher teaching you exactly what you need to do, but you're not practicing it, so um, you don't get good at it. I think it's a really good analogy. Um, you know, my wife is actually a professional musician. That's how, how we met. She was a clarinetist in a symphony. And I, oh. used to, I used to be around when she was teaching lessons, and that was always a common complaint. She could tell the difference between the students who would only show up for their once-a-week lesson and then never yeah. touch it again, and those who actually spent 20, 30, an hour a day actually practicing the things that she taught them every week. Yeah. yeah. Huge difference. Well, and it does relate directly to police forces all over the probably the world. We frequently see uh, people who uh, think that as long as they can struggle through their qualification every year, they're, they're good to go, uh, bring on the gunfight. And the, the fact is that's so incredibly wrong. They're so incredibly unpracticed. Your specialty units uh, would be the exception. They, they get lots of uh, opportunity to fire shots. But your, your average roadie um, just doesn't get the opportunity to practice anywhere near enough to be uh, actually good. And, you know, as long as we're on that topic, you, you just never get in enough gunfights to learn how to be in a gunfight. So you have to practice the skills, practice and practice the skills, do them dry in your basement, do them anywhere as you can uh, until you're genuinely good. You just can't be too good uh, in a gunfight. So I want to use that actually as a jumping off point for another question, because if, if the goal here is to have to train the conscious mind and, and do that practice to where those correct behaviors become automatic within the subconscious mind, what does a good practice session look like? It has a purpose. The ver very first, a lot of people will bring, you know, a new gun and a keg of ammo and get on the range and just shoot a whole bunch of shots without any mindfulness about what they're doing. Um, what we usually recommend for a practice session is that you have one specific goal for that particular, whether it's one magazine, one round, a half an hour, whatever it is, but that session. Um, the goals need to be simple. Um, things like, uh, I'm going to uh, run my mental program for every shot. And if you're not in the habit of doing that, that's a really, really good goal. It will get you further faster than almost any other single goal. Um, if you're already doing that regularly, but you notice that you, uh, you move around a lot between shots, then you might have a goal that says, I'm going to anchor my forward elbow hand, whatever, pick one, uh, and, and, and leave it in position for a string of 10 shots. That type of thing. Very specific, concrete, doable, all at the shooter end of the range. Yes, goals, goals should never be related to the uh, other end of the range. They should not have a number in them. They should not be score-related. Uh, a goal should always be performance-oriented, which, of course, is your end of the, of the range. 
Uh, and it is something that if you can improve, then you'll get that score that you're trying to get at the other end. Focus on performance. Get it right at your end. The gun will take care of it at the other end. So I get to go to the opening quote, you train the mind and the rest will follow, right? If you're teaching yourself to execute just on your own every time, then the score happens. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yep. If you execute the shot well, you have good equipment and ammo, you, you're zeroed correctly for that distance, um, every, everything happens at the shooter end of the range. And, and guess what? The, all the shots will be in a small group and, um, you know, in the middle, which is what you want. It's where all the best points are kept. <laughs> so actually, you just mentioned something I want to kind of have a quick, quick tangent on. You said having a good equipment and ammunition. I think, especially in the U.S., there's this there's this kind of this subculture that just wants to spend more money on better equipment and like crazy amounts of ammo. But yep. where is the tipping point? Like, is there like where where do you think there is a difference between that's good enough that now you're limiting factor versus like, well, I'm just going to go spend more money and let the money make me better. Well, a lot of these guys are are uh, substituting spending money for spending time in good practice. Uh, as far as your equipment goes, it depends on, on what it is you have to hit. Uh, if, if your target that you have to hit is, uh, you know, two minutes of angle, uh, then a gun that will produce a one minute of angle group will, will do, uh, do the job. Now focus on firing it to its limits and you'll, and you'll be fine. Um, there's lots of gun makers out there that will claim, well, I've got a gun here that'll shoot quarter minute angle all day long and that's what you need. And so, People beat paths to their door to, to make uh, to get that gun, only to find out that you know that they fired it you know 20 times and they counted the three closest shots inside there and claim that that's what that's what it'll do. Um, you just get a get equipment and ammunition that will shoot the size of the of the bullseye that you have to hit, and then practice to the to the capabilities of that rifle and ammo. So I think there's a, there's an important point in there as well that I see all the time, which is someone will go, they'll spend a huge amount of money buying that barrel that'll make a half minute, but then they'll, they'll feed it the cheapest bulk surplus ammo they can find. Yeah. 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 We see that a lot. Yeah. Um, We have uh, some of our courses here. uh, We require match grade ammo and they'll show up with hunting grade ammo. And of course, hunting grade ammo is intended to shoot minute of deer. Although nowadays it uh, it's incredibly uh, good accurate ammo, uh, but not quite good enough yet for uh, the standard that we we're that we're setting, and so we can't teach them the things they need to know uh, with with ammunition that isn't going to group to the standard. Yeah, and that's that's particularly important with hunting ammo because you'll notice that the manufacturers say, you know, we're we're good out to 300 meters or 400 meters, and after that, you know, it, it really not grouping well. Uh, you really need match grade ammo intended for the distance that you're going to shoot as well, which is why when we were competing, we were reloading like crazy because that was the only way we could get ammo that would stand up to the distance. Uh, that's that's another rabbit hole, and I have not ventured down yet <laughs> is to start reloading my own. <laughs> oh, it's fun. It's like crafts for kids. <laughs> so I, I want to bring this back, back to the mental program because now we have a good base of the conscious mind being what you're actively thinking about all the time and the subconscious being what you've practiced and ingrained naturally. So when you say the mental program is kind of your conscious cue, you know, what does that look like? How many, like how many steps does it have? Like, is it, you mentioned a verbal trigger is it can be a physical trigger. Like what does that, what does that well, look like in practice? It can be as simple. If we go back to, uh, to our police uh, and their pistol or anybody with a pistol, uh, it can be as simple as two words. Uh, if you have a particular stoppage with a, with a pistol, the mental program to clear that is wrap and tap or tap and rack. Uh, and so it can be that simple. What we use uh, for uh, long range shooting and, and in our target rifle uh, competitions, the very first step was breathe and relax. Just, just make yourself take a great big deep breath and feel yourself relax because the best shots are always fired from the relax, uh, a relaxed position. And the next one is correct target. You need to have a conscious thought that you are, in fact, on the correct target. You can appreciate when we teach our police snipers how important correct target becomes uh, for them. Uh, the next thing is level. you got to make sure that you're level 
because any kind of canting in there, as we say, you can't cant. Any kind of canting in there is going to cause your bullet to go wide. Uh, and then we have a uh, once you kind of get those uh, those in place, and then we have the the last three, and it's float, squeeze, and wait. And the idea is you float, uh, you let your sight picture float. It's seldom ever absolutely still, but as long as it's inside the area that you want to hit, then and and you let a good shot go, then it's going to land inside that area. So float, squeeze uh, means a smooth uh, increase of pressure on the trigger, um, and um, wait means wait for the gun to go off. If you make the gun go off, then you'll know exactly when to flinch. Uh, and disturb the sight picture, which of course causes your shot to go someplace else. So float, squeeze, and wait are the last three important parts of our mental program uh, leading up to that perfect shot. To use an analogy from the weightlifting world, it sounds an awful lot like when I see deadlifters or squatters at the gym and they have somebody coaching them using using these verbal cues, where yeah. it's, it just kind of seems like they're just, it's just an automatic like flat back, knees to the bar, kind of like these just, very short cues that just remind that person that this is what you got to do next. This is the next step. Yeah, that's uh, uh, exa- exactly right. We're, there's there's mental programs in almost everything we do. The, the military has some uh, some great ones for a fire and movement. It's up, he sees me down. So up, you you get up and you run uh, a couple of steps, and then he sees me. So you you go prone and. Um, and it's really important, of course, that you keep running that so that you get up again and do another bound. Um, all of these these things that require you to go go forward with uh, with a steadfast mind and uh, and let your skills take over how you do it uh, are are governed by mental programs. Now that we've, we've kind of covered two circles now, so I think we have a pretty good sense of what it looks like to have a mental program, but there's a third circle you guys talk about in the book. That's the self image. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, uh, to quote Lanny Basham, you know, he, he says something along the lines of you will never perform better than how you view yourself. Um, yeah, we, we, we would probably put it in a more positive statement. Uh, we'd say having done the right training and practice, you get the confidence to put in a good performance. And, and the key in our view, is is self-talk. It's what you're saying in inside yourself that helps you determine how far you can go and, and what you're able, able to do. You can limit yourself or you can help yourself grow. So, you're, so we're saying that it's really, I mean, the best ways you can do is, is self-talk, is, is don't be down on yourself. Um, so what happens if you have a bad practice session? Okay, oh, wonderful question. Uh, first is um, is um, everything that happens at a training session, a competition, or in a gunfight is data. If you don't learn from it, you just paid for it. If you don't learn from it, then you have truly walked away from and left stuff on the table. What you want to do is every time something happens, find a solution, convert it into the solved practice or behavior, and then start repeating that. And if you're at wit's end and can't figure out what it is, then get an expert. Call somebody and put, put it in your mind. I'm going to find a solution for whatever this issue was. Yeah, if you think of, of, of a flinch, if you just say to yourself, geez, I flinch a lot, what's the picture that's in your mind at that moment? But if you say, I need a solution for flinching, what's the picture that's in your mind now? So if you just use anything that happens to you as data, towards coming up with the correct solution, then, then everything that happens to you is good. That's right. That's exactly right. My, my favorite with this was um, we, were, we were on the range, target rifle range. It was nationals. There was a young cadet came off the line, and she, she, um, she couldn't stop talking about the fact that she had lost two points on her last shot called the magpie. She was very, very upset about it. And and she was talking about it and couldn't stop talking about it. And I went over to her and I said, what went right for you? And she kept talking about the magpie. And so I repeated, what went right for you? And about the fourth time that I asked the question, she looked at me with big eyes and said, oh, you want to know what went right? Oh, she said, just before that, I had nine perfect bullseyes. I, um, I um, shot a, 
uh, my best score ever at this distance. <laughs> so, so just with some persistence, we were able to turn that around. And she started thinking about all the things that had gone well. And once you look at things in that light, then you can take the lesson that something like a magpie can call you can can cause you. Uh, an, another relationship to, to this is that your self-image and your performance must equate. So if we start to develop a better self-image, it is like me to, to put in a good performance because I focus on this, this, and this, and this, uh, then you'll automatically start seeing a better performance. And as soon as you start seeing a better performance, then your self-image will go, well, well, it's like me. Uh, I need to do more of this. And, and so the two of the, them will just work with each other until you suddenly become a really good shot. Someone who's new and first getting into this and trying to get better at shooting, should, they should focus obviously on what they're doing well and, and write about those things. Yeah. What, how does that relate to like, if they go to a competition and, and you know, they're going to, they're going to lose to somebody and they want to get better. How should they handle that? You know, how does that relate to when they see a successful shooter? What should they do when they see somebody else who's doing better than them? Latch onto them, learn from them. <laughs> yeah. Go up and ask, how did you do that? that on, on that second shot, you, you really pegged it for the wind. What were you looking at uh, to get such a good wind call on that? Uh, what are some of the things I should be looking for on this range for, uh, for wind? You know, this sort of stuff. Um, yeah, it's really hard to keep them from dwelling on the fact that, well, like the little cadet, she shot a magpie on her last shot. Uh, Talked to, as, as Linda did, went over to her and got her thinking turned around. So, um, it's all data and use that data to move in your direction. Yeah. Sometimes I'll, I'll ask a shooter to, um, to think instead of thinking about the, what they just did as their own performance, think about it as if they were coaching the person that just produced that performance. So how would they address it as a coach? And that sometimes helps them get enough distance from the emotional content to be able to start dealing with the factual content. As Keith said, it's all data. You paid for it. Get something out of it. So I think that's a really good point where you keep saying like you paid for it. You, you paid for it in your experience. So, so learn something from that. I think a lot of people kind of don't think of it in those terms. They think in terms of paying for it means I spent money on it. Yeah. No, you spent, you spent practice, time, training, heart, uh, all of those things. And money. And money um, on, on getting to where you are now. And, and if, and if you, you haven't reached perfection yet, and who among us have, um, you know, you, you need to learn from every experience where something less than perfect happens. So do you think it's possible? Well, of course, we know it's possible. But what does it look like when someone's self-image actually exceeds their ability? That is the, uh, what do we call them? The, um, the, the know-it-all. Yes. The, the one that, that uh, talks the talk. Um, and, um, and doesn't perform. We, we run into these all the time. Um, I'm trying to think back. Um, they're the ones that, that, um, have this, a bloated self image that I don't need to train. Uh, I'm good uh, the way I am. Uh, so therefore, um, their conscious mind is, is off on a, on a, a tangent, uh, the, they have not practiced with the subconscious mind, uh, to uh, get all the skills uh, embedded uh, where they need them, uh, and they're just kind of relying on, on their talk. These are the ones that will, uh, I think back to a time when we started the first F-class uh, national or international championships here, and, and I was having trouble. I, I was designated as the team captain for that, and I was having trouble uh, coming up with uh, the right number of shooters to compete in that thing, and so I was going around the range talking to, to F-class shooters, and the one guy says, oh, I can, I can shoot well, and he pulls a, a little group out of his wallet, a little wee three-shot group out of his wallet, and says, my gun will do this all day long. Uh, what range was this? Well, this is 100 meters, but it'll shoot. Have you shot at a longer range as well? No, but it'll do this all day long. Well, I had to put him in there, and his gun was an absolute failure. Him and his gun was an absolute failure at, uh, at the long range. And so... That's kind of the, the self-image that you fire three shots, you got a really lucky little group uh, and, uh, and the self-image won't allow you uh, to shoot a bigger group. Um, and, uh, and so you think that's what you and your gun can do. You know, you sometimes get 
these people on uh, on courses. We don't as much because uh, we're fairly well known for what we teach, and uh, they know they're not going to go very far with us. But you'll get people sometimes who think, ah, I already know this. I don't really need to be here doing this your way. I can do it my way just as well. And And what we normally say to them is, if you can do it your way just as well, we'll give you your money back. You don't need to be here. If you want to try our way, at least for the five days you're here, then then we're happy to have you stay. And you can always go back to your way if you find that it doesn't work. The um, the other thing that we do to kind of change that self-image, um, at the end of the day, Linda started, uh, when we first started this, Linda started with a, what we call an end-day debrief. And uh, we start by asking the question, what is the key thing that you're taking away from today's training? Uh, one or two points that's really sticking in your mind that you're that that is really working for you. And uh, if we have our our bloated image individual, we always save him to last um, because um, we'll we'll hear from everybody and they'll say, well, this went really well for me, and I'm really going to remember that. And somebody else will say, well, this this over here went really well for me, and and I'm going to really focus on that. And another will say. Well, I had an idea, but your two ideas were really good too. So, you know, these all are working really well for me. And so by the time we get to this guy, he can't really say, well, I didn't really learn anything here because he just heard the rest of the class all come up with these really good ideas. And so slowly he turns around. We generally ignore him uh, throughout the uh, the classes. But on about the third day, he starts to recognize that he's now uh, shooting bigger groups than everybody else is. And so he slowly comes around. And we generally win them by the end of the week. So it kind of reminds me of uh, something I've heard. I talked to another, I talked to Russ Miller, who is another trainer here in the U.S. And he said, um, these kind of people are the ones who load their rifles with ego and not ammo. And I always thought that was a kind of a, a clever way to say <laughs> That's it. Outstanding. That's very good. We'll steal that. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, that came, so you heard from me. It came from Russ Miller. I'm not taking credit for that one. Um, yeah. So do you think there's a distinguishing between, I think some people might be worried, like they want to be humble, you know, if they're trying to have a self image and they're trying to talk themselves what they've done well all the time, how worried do you like, how realistic do you think it is that they're worried about coming across as egotistic or, or kind of as a overconfident? Usually Canadians more than Americans, honestly, <laughs> um, Canadians are very humble people and, and really have trouble uh, talking themselves up. So we, we look for no adjectives and all nouns and verbs, basically. We want them to say accurately what they, they can do and not worry about dressing it up with, you know, extraordinary adjectives and things like that. Um, if, they, if they shoot a small group, we want them to take credit for shooting a small group. We don't want them saying it was luck or, or kismet or whatever. We want them to take total control and 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 attribute the skill correctly to themselves. So to, to that end, anytime on our courses and uh, a student does particularly well, we have them uh, uh, verbalize it. We'll say, wow, that's just a gorgeous little group. What did you do so well to get such a small little group? And, and what they'll end up doing, of course, is reciting our marksmanship principles or, or uh, some particular technique that they, uh, that they focused on on that particular thing. And uh, the rest of the class can see that their whole attention was at their end of the of the class, uh, and so it, you know they end up confirming and and teaching maybe to some of them exactly what we're trying to get across. So if we get them to verbalize it, then they recognize that yeah, I did do a good job here. I think that's really good advice. Is is kind of go back and focus on kind of their performance, right? To say something like, "Oh, this is what I did well. I followed this advice, and this is the result." Is own, own your success. At the end of yeah, the day. own it. That's a good way to say it. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes they'll shoot a five-shot group, and we always go with five and ten-shot groups. Uh, they'll go with a five-shot group, and they'll have this four-shot cluster, and this one will be out a little ways. And and uh, you go down, and you say, "Whoa, what a outstanding group!" And immediately they'll launch into why that one shot was out there. And I'll say, "No, no. Just tell me about the four that went into this little cluster." What did you do so well to get those in there? And they'll say, well, you know, I, I followed this principle. But that shot out there, that was my third shot. No, no. And I, sometimes I've had to patch that hole out or put my finger over it and say, talk to me about these four. Because if you can get all five going like this four, then uh, then, then that other one will just disappear for you. You just got to focus on the four you did right and do it for all five shots next time. 
this is an underlying concept that a lot of uh, a lot of people don't get. Um, they they often think that if you focus on the things you did wrong, that you will correct them and things will get better. And in fact, that's not true. If you focus on the things you do right, you'll tend to do them over and over again, and gradually the wrong things just disappear. I think that's a perfect way to state it. Yeah, it's absolutely perfect. So, well, thank you. so, so, so something I want to, uh, because you mentioned this a couple of times now, so I just want to make sure I come, uh, mention this. Um, so you mentioned you always do five and 10 shot groups. And at the same time, you've, you've mentioned a couple of times before about people pulling out like a three shot group. So why is it important that you focus on the five and the 10 shots to you? Uh, it's, it's harder to be lucky for five shots. Sh- uh, group sizes don't get smaller the more you shoot at them. Um, and a five shot group tends to tell you uh, probably three or four times as much information as a three shot group tells you. Um, and a 10-shot group probably tells you 100 times more information than a five-shot group. When we were shooting um, small bore, we used to, of course, take our rifles to be tested for ammo because you don't load rimfire. You, you test uh, load after load, lot after lot, until uh, you get uh, the one that shoots the best. Uh, some of the people offering that service would only shoot five-shot groups, and we would insist on 10. The guy that we used at that time would start with five. If five didn't meet the threshold, then we'd carry on. No need to waste any more ammo. Uh, but if we got something that we thought was good, then we'd shoot uh, 10 shots at least twice and, uh, and see whether or not that was really good. And the stats are, right, are there. You can look them up online and you'll see the bell curve. And you've got to shoot at least 10 to get a meaningful statistic. What you get a more meaningful, more accurate if you go 20 or 30 shots but the, uh, the increment is very small. Okay. Yeah. Cause I know, uh, looking through message boards and things where guys will review like the accuracy of a barrel and, or it's like, Oh yeah, my gun shoots, you know, one MOA all day. And then they said, you get the little three shot group and then you have the guys who actually do it all the time and they're like 20 shots and then they group, they statistically outline that one. So yeah. something that stood out to me. Yeah. I go back to be, beware the guy that pulls a three shot group out of his wallet. <laughs> so uh, just kind of a personal story on that one is uh I, I did a review of a of a rifle barrel or really a whole upper receiver uh from bcm and i'm always upfront about like I, I pull out a target that was like my best one ever with it from 100 about 100 meters and you know there's four holes touching right around the x ring and then the fifth one isn't even on the paper and i'm always very clear to people like look this is don't take this as this is what it does all the time because i'd still miss that last one but just kind of a, it reminds me of that. I'm always having to defend that one for myself, I guess. You also, you also have to know a little bit about the gun and its capability, the ammo and its capability, and, and your own capabilities. Um, if we have a student who really doesn't seem to be able to group at all with his, his gun, we'll give it to somebody who is a good shooter, one of us or our staff, uh, usually, and, and see if the gun has a fault or if, the ammo has a, has a fault. It's just not good grouping ammo in that gun. So you really, you really have to make sure you, uh, you eliminate the variables and, and make the right attribution for the, for the cause of a big group. And an example that you just gave, um, if, you could, if you can put four shots all around the X-ring, there's really no reason for another shot to miss the entire target. I'd be more suspect that you put it in the same hole as one of those other four. Actually, I'm trying to remember it now. I, 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 uh, it was my, it was my mistake. This was years ago. It was, uh, I was shooting, uh, it was one of those moments where you kind of have a, like a, a dummy moment and I was staging the trigger and I was in mid breath cycle and I just, I, I bumped and it, it and it went off when it wasn't even on the paper. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's different. So yeah, I, that's I own that one. That was a, uh, I learned also a safety, mis- a safety mistake that day about <laughs> keeping. Yeah. Well, the thing to do there, of course, is reload and, and, learn from that, uh, that mistake and, uh, and fire another good shot so that you do have five on paper. So actually that's a really good thing I want to come back to then is you talk about, uh, following through. And I've seen this a lot, uh, in people talk about competition and training and things they learn where people are doing dry fire and they don't like on a bolt action rifle, they don't cycle fully. 
Have you oh, ever? They just handle and put it down again to, for the next. Yeah. Thing? Yeah. Like they'll, like they'll like, they don't actually practice cycling the rifle at all. So they'll, they'll like fire the shot and then, Oh, that's good. And they'll put it down, but they don't practice cycling. And I've, I've heard stories of where, cause that's, that's the habit they've ingrained through dry fire that in a competition or a real world setting, then they don't actually reload when they need to. And then the next shot they really need and it wasn't loaded. Yeah. That's, that's a good point from a tactical point of view, operational type, but it does kind of depend on, on what you're training for. Like in our target rifle world, we shot single shot rifles. So if you wanted to just dry fire a series of shots, all you had to do was raise the bolt handle and lower it back down again. Uh, Cause it didn't, uh, you were never uh, under particular stress to, uh, to reload another one and fire in a, in a hurry. Uh, but from a tactical point of view, then you'd definitely want to do that. And some of the competitions that we were in, uh, which required uh, follow-up shots, then then that's what you would train for. You would certainly recycle it, make sure the bolt comes all the way to the rear, and you don't do what we call short stroking it uh, and missing and missing the next round. So it kind of depends what you're what you're training for. So that's actually a good transition point to here because we're, we're comparing kind of competition world to real world experiences with hunting or tactical or self-defense or police work or military. Um, there's a lot more that goes into this than just the marksmanship piece. And, and, and the book, you kind of talk, talk about aerobic fitness as a major player in that. Um, would you mind speaking a little bit more about that? Yeah, um, I, I think aerobic fitness, all types of fitness play into shooting, but aerobic fitness is the thing that keeps your brain oxygenated. And, and there's two things going on there. One is, is your uh, awareness of what's going on around you. So for target shooting, that might be the wind, it might be other competitors, it might be um, uh, whether or not your target fell on that shot or you need to give it another one, whatever. Um, but it also uh, plays into decision-making. We've been on the range with, uh, with shooters who weren't fit and uh, when the heat gets turned on, and even in Canada, we do get very hot days in August. Um, when that heat turns up, a lot of them stop being able to make good decisions. And those good decisions might be pretty simple. It's like, okay, I can see the wind is increasing. I think it's about a minute. And they look at their sight and they can't figure out what three plus one is to put four minutes on the gun because their brain isn't oxygenated enough to make good decisions like arithmetic. The other thing that um, oxygen is really important for is vision. And uh, if, you, if you fail to have sufficient oxygen, you will start getting blurry vision. And a lot of people think, oh, yeah, the mirage is up. Well, it may be, but your vision's down. So you really need to stay oxygenated and hand-in-hand hand with that is hydrated uh, in order to keep your brain working and your vision going well. Some of the other uh, competitions uh, that we've been involved in require uh, positions, different positions. And so you need to have enough uh, flexibility uh, to, in order to get in and out of these positions uh, as, the, as required. So, yeah, um, you need to be physically fit all around. It's even, even handling, um, being able to lift a rifle up or, or a pistol, hold a pistol in position over a course of fire, a lot of people come here on the first day, they, we limit the number of shots because we know they're not really fit enough to handle a big volume, um, and, and they still have some, some difficulty. Um, our cops, even, who are incredibly fit but not specifically fit for the rifle, um, sometimes they're taking Advil every night of the course because they, their muscles aren't uh, in tune with the type of fitness required for a specific course of fire. The other thing that uh, fitness, overall fitness, and and uh, certainly aerobic fitness included, uh, is important for stamina. Uh, uh, sometimes you get folks that, that uh, yeah, they can shoot 10 good shots, but then they're tired, and they need a break. And for most of the matches we've ever shot, you've got to be able to shoot a minimum of about 60 shots a day uh, for a long gun and probably about um, 150 for a tactical rifle and probably more for a pistol, So, um, except for things like Ipsic where you've, you've got to run and shoot so you, you get worn down a bit that way. But the stamina, both the physical stamina and the mental stamina, are very important for a lot of, uh, a lot of the shooting events. And uh, the final thing they've, they, they've said in the military um, that 
the more fit you are, the less likely you are to have PTSD coming home. And, and so they have drawn a fairly tight linkage between fitness and your ability to manage stress, both in theater as well as when you come home. And anybody who is a serious competitor uh, goes through the same type of process going to an important match as, and following the important match as somebody does in a, in a real-life engagement. So they, they need the fitness in order to manage the stress while they're competing, as well as deal with the aftermath where the excitement is gone, the adrenaline is gone, there's nobody patting them on the back anymore, and they're kind of drained, and they still need the fitness to control all of that. I think that's a really good point is that the stress management piece and that that's something I need to dig more into in the future. But, um, and everything we said that actually reminds me of three stories that happened to me that kind of relate to this. Um, so one was, uh, several years ago, I was doing an apple seed event out in California. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with those at all. That we have them here in Canada as well. They okay. started up. Yeah. So I was doing one of those. It was a two day event and it was on day two. We actually shot the whole and hey, get your rifle and badge, which I missed by like two points. And, and the reason why I remember during all the training for it, they were all very complimentary of like my shooting. Uh, but I kept kind of getting flustered. And at one point the guy asked me, Hey, can you run a mile without stopping? And I remember being like taken aback by that. Cause I was active duty at the time of like, of course I can run a mile. I run like a 5k every Friday. But the fact that he asked that kind of stood out to me is that that's not a normal thing to come across. But the idea was that you might say, take more than one shot per breath was what he was trying to do. Cause I was, I was struggling with getting all my shots off in the time allowed. Mm-hmm. but what actually got me on that one was the hydration part of it. I was not drinking enough water for these all day events. These were eight hours in the California desert sun and I did not have enough water. So by the time we got to the afternoons, my vision was definitely blurring up and I was, wasn't able to focus as well as I could like at the start of the first day. Yeah. Yeah. We have a, we have a training uh, assistant here who, uh, who's very, very fit. He's a fourth degree black belt and, in some in, kind of martial in arts. martial arts, yes, yeah. and he uh, he um, doesn't ask uh, the students if they've had a, had enough to drink lately. He says, "When when did you pee last?" Yeah, and if it w- was greater than two hours, then he sits them sits them down and makes them drink half a liter of, wa- of water. And um, for every four liters of water, you have uh, half a liter of um, some type of electrolyte drink. So it's really, really critical, and and not just in the in the hot, dry desert. Of course, it, it is there, but uh, you know, if you get a great day that's um, what's thirty degrees, uh, ninety five mm-hmm. uh, Fahrenheit, um, and uh, and about eighty five or ninety percent humidity, that really saps you out as well. And you know, you have act active shooting as well as uh, as prone, and we of course run a a target bot, so we have to go down there and and sweat uh, for a while lifting targets. So uh, all these things add up, and like you say, eight hour days, it they're not used to it. And something else you mentioned was the flexibility and the stamina, uh, and that goes to another training event I was at, where I think uh, people who go to classes get accustomed to just staying on a square range, even if it's like fairly short or long range. But you kind of relatively stay stable. But this one actually involved. Lots of getting up and running. So like you said earlier, the um, I'm up, he sees me, I'm down. That that was what we had to do. And I don't think people were accustomed to actually having to get down like prone and then hop up and sprint a little bit and then hop back down for, for long stretches. And then you can tell that sport specificity of you could be in pretty good shape for doing certain things, but if you don't practice that, that's very draining and it definitely it zaps you by the end of it. Yeah, absolutely. We, we do uh, a lot of that kind of work on our, uh, on our police courses, and and we also train competition for a service rifle that involves a lot of uh, movement and jumping up and down, and tactical rifle and uh, same sort of thing, and even pistol. There there are certain events that require a fair bit of uh, of uh, moving around and jumping up and down, and um, if you're not used to it, you know the, the very first thing for most people is either the quads or the hammies uh, start objecting. An interesting match that we have here that uh, that uh, demonstrates what Linda was just talking about. It's, uh, it involves you firing uh, two shots from the standing position and then immediately dropping down into the kneeling position and firing two shots, and you have to do that in 10 seconds. But now you stay in the kneeling position, uh, and on the next 10-second exposure, you fire two shots kneeling and then stand up and fire two shots. And, of course, that's quite 
uh, foreign to a lot of people. We're not used to coming from a from a, a supported position or a more supported position into the less one by standing up. So it really starts to show on your quads there. Yeah. So <laughs> for everybody listening, get your squats in there. Yeah. <laughs> I also advocate for the squatting position, but I know that's not necessarily as common in competition these days. Well, it depends where you are. Um, I've shot a lot in Bisley, in the service rifle, uh, in Bisley, and the Gurkhas over there uh, exclusively use squatting, and they shoot incredibly well from squatting. Squatting has its place. Uh, probably you can get in and, in and out of it a little faster if you needed to make yourself a smaller target and fire a couple of accurate shots and then move on. Uh, squatting works very well. In fact, um, one of the years that we were over there, uh, we took the Canadian Forces Combat Shooting Team over there several times. And one of the years, the uh, the Brit who won their Queen's Medal said that he used the squatting when he needed to be able to get up and go fast, whether it was to a standing position or to a, an additional leg of a rundown, and, and used um, a more classic kneeling position when he needed uh, pinpoint accuracy. So he was very versatile in both and, and applied them well. I feel like that's something I need to practice more because I find I, I struggle with kneeling for accuracy. I'm much better from the squatting because I get that two points of contact from elbows. With kneeling, I'm still a little bit in bigger wobble zone. I know it's just a practice thing. Next time you're coming to Canada, come see us. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Um, so something else I kind of, you mentioned before, I want to make sure I come back and, and talk about this is uh, you mentioned when we were talking about like experience and you said, oh, the, the wind picked up one minute. And I think that's something most, most of my listeners probably aren't used to hearing, even, even myself, is talking in wind in terms of minutes versus speed. Um, I think that's kind of a, an interesting perspective. Um, so what does it mean? Like, how do you practice reading wind like that? Well, the best way uh, that we've ever found, and we do this on our wind courses, is, is we get you uh, out of the shooting position. We set you in a chair uh, with your spotting scope and, and one of us will fire shots, normally from a bipodded position uh, that we can eliminate as much human error as possible. And we make decisions uh, on that wind. Uh, we look at the direction, we look at the speed, we um, uh, maybe look at our charts, we uh, come up with a number and um, and we apply that to our sights, and then we fire our shot. And then we get instant feedback as to whether that decision was correct or not. Um, if it wasn't correct, then we make a, a, a sight adjustment. If it is correct, we look at the wind and say, well, is it the same or is it different? Uh, if, it's, if it's the same, well, then we carry on. We just got all that data from our last shot. We carry on to the next shot. And if it's different, then we carry on with a thought process. Is it the same? Or is it different? Is it, is it, has it picked up or has it dropped off? Uh, has it increased in value or decreased? And then we say, then if it has increased or decreased, then is it by a little or a lot? Uh, and a little, of course, uh, depends on the range you're shooting at. A little at 300 meters is, uh, is a quarter minute. Uh, a little at, at uh, 900 meters is, is a minute. Um, a lot at 300 is is maybe a minute uh, a lot at uh, 900 could be four to eight minutes so uh, it, it just kind of moves you in the correct direction as to what you need to be thinking about and looking at to come up with that wind decision and in the end there is no book there is no way that you can learn to read the wind um, other than getting out there making a wind decision applying it to your sight and firing that good shot uh, the reason we like to apply wind to our sh- to uh, our wind calls uh, on our site, apply windage to on our site, is that we put numbers to that condition. So that's a three-minute wind that I just shot. Okay, uh, the wind has come up. Uh, it's now a four-minute wind, and I can come back and say, well, that it, the wind is now back to where it was. So that was a three-minute wind. So you put that on your site and a way to go. And you can come back to that same range now, and you can look down range and say, yep. That's a seven-minute win because I remember that from the last time when that condition, when when I had that condition, I had seven minutes on. So you can apply seven minutes and be real, real close. Okay, so now we're going to run out of time here in a minute. So I have only a couple of questions left, if you all don't mind. Sure. Number one on this one is who are you learning from right now? Like, what are you or what are you learning right now? Great question. Um, Keith spends a good deal of time 
reviewing just about every darn thing that he can lay his hands on, either books or internet or YouTube or whatever. And now and again, um, somebody will come up with a gem and we'll blatantly steal it and use it in our courses. Uh, we, we love to do that. We, we think we're very, very good at cherry picking things that work. So we're constantly trying to come up with, trying to render all this down to get right to uh, the very things that make the big difference. Uh, for example, in pistol, there's a lot of attention being made to grip and stance uh, when they're not the most important. Um, you can um, uh, uh, even sight picture isn't as important as trigger manipulation. It all boils down to trigger manipulation. Um, and uh, and so that's that's what we're looking for. We're trying to render it down to the the thing that makes the biggest difference. On that subject, we are working on a on a book on pistol shooting. Uh, we have a few things that we do very differently from the rest of the world, and we really would like to get them out. Um, but one of the things we're doing is we're testing the program with a new induction of uh, brand new shooters. So we, we will put them through the program um, that, that we're going to propose in the book and see what kind of results we get and change the program as needed to make it more universally effective. We, ha- we have four grandmothers that have been coming out to our pistol performance or pistol foundations courses here, and, um, and they, outshoot, they outshoot cops hand over fist. <laughs> That's always good to hear. Yeah, <laughs> I love grandmothers, grandmothers that can shoot. <laughs> oh, I think that goes back to, because we have the same, see the same kind of phenomenon. I think that comes back to letting go of that ego and just listening to what's being told to you and putting it into work. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Grandmas are smart that way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, so here's another one. I asked this to everybody. I know it can come across as negative. Don't take it that way, but it's kind of a good learning point for people, which is, what is something that you wish people would stop doing right now? Uh, stop listening to the YouTubes, I think. is what <laughs> <laughs> That's a hot point right now. Yeah, there's a ton of, of, of just pure BS going on out there in the YouTubes. Um, yeah, because um, people who are learning can't do it selectively, so they come to us with this big jumble of thoughts in their mind, and you know, first we have to erase their slate. So that's, that's kind of the number one job when they first come in the door is, is to make sure that we can get our foundations in place of all that jumble. It's interesting because you mentioned YouTube. I think that's so common now that people think they can go learn anything by watching a video online without someone who's been there, done that to kind of walk them through why to make those decisions that you're making along the way. Yeah, yeah. very good point. Yeah. So is there anything else we could uh, change if we could? Um, I guess um, I'd like to be able to give an egoectomy sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, uh, I think I think most people come with the best of, of heart and intentions. When I mean, either they're being sent by their agency or their unit, or they're putting out their own hard-earned bucks to come see us. Um, the hardest ones to deal with are ones that are kind of courseaholics, right? They just take every course going or they buy, you know, buy the ammo, latest ammo or buy the latest gun or whatever it is, um, basically trying to find a short uh, way to become an excellent shot. And as, as Keith says right at the beginning of our courses, we have no magic cleaning wand. We cannot make you uh, a perfect shooter by tapping you on the shoulder and declaring it so. Uh, we're going to tell you everything that we know that can help you progress to being a good shot. But in the end, you have to absorb it, uh, assimilate it, apply it, and hold on to it. And it's all up to you. Fantastic. Okay, so that's going to about wrap it up for me. I do have one question for you guys, uh, just to kind of make sure the audience out here knows. But um, if people want to go learn more from you guys, either kind of look at your books, the website, or take a course from you, where should they go? Um, they can um, take a look at our website, www.milken.com, M-I-L-C-U-N.com, or they can email us uh, directly, uh, lindamilken at gmail.com, L-I-N-D-A-M-I-L-C-U-N at gmail.com. Well, thank you very much. So once again, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you guys today, and I really appreciate you taking the time. 
uh, we really uh, we really enjoy it. You might be able to tell this is our our pet subject. All right, I hope you enjoyed that. And as always, we're going to go over my takeaways. I've got three big ones here that cover a lot of points. Let's get to it. So a key takeaway, number one, is that mental management starts at the beginning. A lot of us think that we need to master the mechanics of a new skill first and then work on the mental game. But Linda said that's not the best way. We now teach it from the very first series of dry fires we put our students through. And it's because the, if, the, if the mind isn't in control, we have a great deal of trouble making the body do what we want it to do. The purpose of incorporating it early is to teach the mind to follow a series of steps each and every time without distraction. It doesn't need to be any more than a checklist of word cues reminding you of each step. And you've probably seen this before with something like immediate action drills, which most everyone who's done weapons training knows is tap, rack, bang. That simple series of words keeps you focused on the task at hand. While this will be slow at first while you train the subconscious mind to automatically perform these steps, the end result is that you become more focused and ready to perform at high levels. Takeaway number two is the difference between training and practice. We must distinguish between training and practice. Training means learning a particular skill or task while practice is the purposeful repetition of that activity with the goal of mastery. A lot of people uh, don't distinguish between training and practice. So training is where you first are told about a skill. You might first try it on, see how it fits your own body and, and mindset. And practice is where once you've discovered something that, that appears to be working, you, you do it over and over again. And without that repetition, you got nothing. During the discussion, Keith told the story of a police officer who had clearly been trained on the proper reload technique, but fumbled through it terribly in an actual stress situation because they had not practiced it. This is the result of lack of practice. He knew the skill. He was trained, but he wasn't practiced. And as Keith said, you can never get enough gunfights to learn how to be in a gunfight you have to practice the skills. We frequently see uh, people who uh, think that as long as they can struggle through their qualification every year, they're, they're good to go uh, bring on the gunfight. And the, the fact is that's so incredibly wrong. They're so incredibly unpracticed. Too many of us learn how to do a lot of things, but don't put in the repetitions to master them. It's the same thing that Russ Miller alluded to back in episode eight. To get good, you have to put in the work and dry fire. If you're doing bushcraft, you have to put in the work to build that fire, to tie the knots, to build that shelter. Every practice session you conduct needs to have a purpose or a goal. It's not about going to the range and making noise, but about working on something specific. Um, what we usually recommend for a practice session is that you have one specific goal for that particular, whether it's one magazine, one round, a half an hour, whatever it is, but that session. Maybe it's refining your mental program checklist, or maybe it's a specific position, a technique, or a skill. Whatever it is, be intentional about it. Have that goal and attack it. Takeaway number three, everything is data. And I thought this was a huge point. Everything you do accumulates data, and you have to choose whether or not you're going to learn from it. Everything that happens at a training session, a competition, or in a gunfight is data. If you don't learn from it, you just paid for it. If you don't learn from it, then you have truly walked away from and left stuff on the table. As part of that, don't focus too much on the things you did wrong. You'll subtly teach yourself to repeat that behavior again. Instead, focus on the things you did right in every experience. That's not to say ignore what you did wrong. You should definitely look at any root causes of what you can fix, but it's more productive to think about what went right 
and replicate that. This is an underlying concept that a lot of uh, a lot of people don't get. Um, they they often think that if you focus on the things you did wrong, that you will correct them and things will get better. And in fact, that's not true. If you focus on the things you do right, you'll tend to do them over and over again, and gradually the wrong things just disappear. Your self-image and your performance must equate. So if we start to develop a better self-image, it is like me to, to put in a good performance because I focus on this, this, and this, and this, uh, then you'll automatically start seeing a better performance. The example that Keith gave was if I shoot a five-shot group and four go through a nice ragged hole in the bullseye and the fifth is a flyer, most people will look at that fifth one and focus on, man, what went wrong there? But Keith would say, focus on the four that hit the X ring and say, what went right? And do that again. And that's how you're going to improve. And if you can't figure out what you're doing right, or you don't even think you're doing anything right, then find someone who is and talk to them about it. This could be at a match where you see someone who's a top scorer. Go up and ask them, hey, what did you do there? Talk to them. Learn from them. Replicate that. In the end, this has to do with your self-image. In the grand scheme, your self-image and your performance are equal. If you don't see yourself as someone who can do the thing that you want to do, then you won't accomplish it. Focus on the thing that you want to be, and the rest will fall in line. All right, and that is it for my takeaways. Thank you again for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Once again, the show notes are at everydaymarksman.co forward slash 12, the number 12. Come on by and leave a comment, join our community, let me know what you thought of this episode. If you really liked it, then I would appreciate if you did me a favor. Send it to somebody else who you think might enjoy it. We are a small community, but we're growing and we're passionate and word of mouth is how we spread. I am not interested in spamming inboxes. I don't want to sell you something. I just want to spread the word. So do me a favor and let somebody else know. Come on by, let me know what you think. Or or if you want to be a little bit more fancy, you can jump up on Zello. It's a voice messaging app and you can send me a message. My name is the Marksman 13N and you can send me a message and maybe I'll post it up on the next episode. So with that, have a great day. I will see you next time. Catch you later.